Uh, we've been uh, confronted again uh, by the reality of death this week, haven't we? That in the midst of life, our lives can suddenly end and the continuing living left to know again the grief and emptiness of loss. Uh, but the presence of death in a community is never really a surprise, is it? All our lives do end. Uh, that was brought home to a friend not much older than me who went into hospital recently and was asked about advanced care directives and whether they'd appointed someone to make end-of-life decisions. It was confronting. Our lives end. And unlike tough-minded philosophers who seem willing to embrace nothingness, most of us think, feel that death is awful, not just for the grief it brings to the living. Death itself is awful, a dreadful, unending darkness, the end of everything familiar, the perishing of hope, the irretrievable loss of love, of light, of all the pleasures that our senses bring us, the loss of all we've achieved and built, a vast chasm of unknowing into which we must all fall. Death brings a different category of dread into our lives that casts its long shadow across every human life and every human society. But what if death need not be the end? What if, as Tim Keller, quoting from the Lord of the Rings in John Dixon's final podcast in relation to him, what if, as Tim Keller, Tim Keller said, there will come a time when everything sad will come untrue? What if you could hold the hand of your dying wife or husband or child or friend and say, we will be with the Lord forever. Know in that moment that death was only a temporary interruption to your love and companionship and life and could be confident that what you said was not some vague wish but a sober, reasonable, sure hope that you both could share. A hope that you can move towards your whole life and hold on to even in your own inevitable dying a sober, reasonable, sure hope because this hope of the reversal of death you knew would be realised for it had already been realised in one man. It would be good to have such a hope, wouldn't it? It would bring comfort in the grief at loss, the grief we know now. It would stamp our lives with meaning and purpose, not the futility of working all of life to lose it all. Oh, and it would make the passing years not just a chronicle of growing weakness and loss, but a daily drawing nearer to the realisation of your hope, to a life so much better because it is freed from death forever. 1 Corinthians 15, the chapter we're going to look at tonight and the next two weeks, is about such a hope. It's all about the certainty and reasonableness of the Christian hope of resurrection, of believers in Jesus rising from the dead in transformed bodies, bodies in continuity with the body in which we've died, a hope of personal, embodied, enduring, individual life, a sure hope founded on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. 
Now, I'm just about to read the whole chapter through now because, you see, it is one long argument for the hope of resurrection given in three sections. In verses 1 to 11, Paul writes of the centrality of and evidence for Christ's resurrection. Then in verses 12 to 34, he tells us that Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection and that only our resurrection makes sense of Christian life and practice. And then in verses 35 to 58, Paul addresses objections to the idea of resurrection and shows how good a hope it is by saying our resurrection bodies will be like Christ's, his resurrection, the model for ours. And those three sections also give us the talks, as I've said, for tonight and the next two weeks. Tonight, Christ's resurrection, the resurrection that changes everything. Next week, Christ's resurrection as the guarantee of the resurrection of believers. And the third week, the glory of our resurrection hope. So let's hear what the Lord gave Paul to write for us. And it would be good to follow along in your Bibles or on the screen. Reading from 1 Corinthians 15. Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ 
the first fruits. Afterward, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death, for God has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says everything is put under him, it's obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptised for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people being baptised for them? Why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day, as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning, for some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? You fool. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you are not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the splendour of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. There is a splendour of the sun, another of the moon, and another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendour. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonour, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound 
and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, death, is your victory? Where, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray in your mercy that we would know the truth of what the Apostle proclaims, that Christ has died for our sins, been buried, and that you have raised him from the dead, and that he lives, able to give forgiveness and life to all who call on him. Help me now to speak your word clearly and truthfully. Help us to understand it and to grow in faith and hope and love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the Christian uh, gospel, uh, God's good news, uh, God's good news to the world, believing which, says Paul, saves, is unique because it has at its heart events, things that happened in the world. I passed on to you, writes Paul, as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The truth and power of the Christian message, the Christian gospel, stands or falls with these events, the death of Jesus, his burial and his resurrection. Now that's not true of Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism or the many philosophies that populate our world and compete for our loyalty. They're all about how we should think or live, about our doing, our behaviour. And the test of their truth is often whether that teaching works for us, whether that way of thinking resonates with us, whether we find their understanding of the world and of ourselves congenial. But the Christian faith is based on what has been done, on what God has done in history. And if those events happened, the Christian message is true and Christian faith right, whether we find it congenial or awkward, whether it works for us or creates difficulties for us. And the key elements of what, is, what it is claimed God has done in history are extraordinary. The first is that there's an event that deals with our sin, with freeing us from the consequences of our rebellion against God, and that is the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross, leading to the unheard of claim in both the ancient and modern world that someone who died a shameful death as a criminal is actually God's eternal ruler over all. 
Now that is a big claim. But it's the second extraordinary claim that I want to focus on tonight. And that is that the Jesus who was crucified has been raised on the third day. That is, that the dead and buried Jesus has been resurrected. Now, this is not a claim that the spirit and influence of Jesus lives on in his followers. It's not a claim that Jesus' soul went to be with God when he died. It is very specific that after a period of being dead, Jesus is alive in a body in continuity with the body in which he died, that the power of death over his embodied life was undone and he lives now an embodied life over which death has no power. Now that claim was and is unique. Now Tom Wright is a uh, famous and very prolific New Testament scholar and he's written a great book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. And he says this, Nowhere within Judaism, let alone paganism, is a sustained claim advanced that resurrection has actually happened to a particular individual. The claim about Jesus by the first Christians is unique, though that uniqueness has been challenged. And sadly, I even heard Tom Holland, Rest of History podcast, saying on the Easter podcast, in the context of saying how extraordinary the Christian insistence on a crucified saviour was in the ancient world, saying that stories of resurrection were relatively well known in the ancient world. You know, the coming back to life again of gods and heroes or the stories of dying and rising gods in the cycle of the year. But those stories, especially if if you're familiar with them, are not stories of resurrection. Right in his book, actually surveys them all in the context of exploring what was thought to happen to the dead in the ancient world, what understandings of life after death there were. And the ancient starting point is actually against the claim that resurrection is familiar. The ancient starting point was actually summed up in a line from an ancient playwright. Once a man has died and the dust has soaked up his blood, there is no resurrection. For the ancients, resurrection was, right, right, a way of describing what everyone knew did not happen. The idea that death could be reversed, undone, could, as it were, work backwards. And for many of the ancients who saw the body as the prison of the soul, resurrection was undesirable. He concludes his survey of the stories of ancient paganisms of gods and heroes by saying, no, something had happened to Jesus which had happened to no one else. To say to pagans that Jesus had died and been raised from the dead was to make in their eyes a unique, even an outlandish claim as the New Testament itself witnesses. When Paul was preaching to Athenian intellectuals of the resurrection, it says some began to ridicule him. Others said we'd like to hear more. Some began to ridicule. We know that they were in the majority. And when Paul is defending himself in a trial before a king called Agrippa, uh, defending himself by presenting his call and message, 
And he gets to the point where he says that the Messiah would suffer and that at the first, and as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. The Roman government of Festus cries out, you're out of your mind. Too much study is driving you mad. But to say Jesus has been raised from the dead was actually also to make a claim that was unique in Judaism. The Jews did have stories of people being raised from the dead to die again. Elijah had raised the widow's son, Elisha, the son of the Shunammite woman. Jesus' own ministry had included raising people from the dead, the most notable of whom was Lazarus. But all these people had been raised to more of the same, to life in this age, a life they would again lose in death. Oh, yeah, and some, many, but not all, some Jews in Jesus' day did have an expectation of resurrection at the last day. You see this in Martha's response to Jesus. In John 11, Jesus had said to her, as she grieved, your brother will rise again. And Martha had responded, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But the claim for Jesus is unique. You see, he wasn't raised through any human agency, but God alone. And he was not raised to die again. His is the resurrection of the last day brought into the present, the life of the age to come revealed in this age. And it is this understanding of Jesus' resurrection in the context of the hope of Israel that makes his resurrection not just unique but of ultimate significance to us all. So to see that, let's consider the context further. You would have noticed in verses 3 and 4 that Paul says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was raised according to the scriptures. With that one little phrase, Paul directs us to the Old Testament and what God had promised there to understand the meaning and purpose of Christ's death and resurrection. So what did the scriptures, the Old Testament, say about the resurrection? Well, they spoke of a hope of resurrection. Uh, You heard Ezekiel 37 Uh, where new embodied life after death was actually used as a metaphor for natural rebirth. They had an idea of resurrection that could be used metaphorically. But there is a hope of resurrection for individuals as well. Consider Isaiah, who speaks of the defeat of death in chapter 5. He says, On this mountain, he, God, will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. When he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face. And then he continues in Isaiah 26. Your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. For you'll be covered with the morning dew and the earth will bring out the departed spirits. And especially in Daniel, one of the last books of the Old Testament, You have this this hope. It's either. I don't know what happened there, but I often don't know that. There, good, Daniel, where it says, Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, 
This is at that time, at that time, really at the last time. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. Those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now there's not a lot of detail to this resurrection hope in the Old Testament, but it is real. And in the years between the prophets and Jesus, that hope was developed and adopted by many Jews. But that hope for resurrection was focused on the last day and the age to come when death would be no more. You see, Jews understood the future prophesied in Scripture in these terms. There was this age now, then the day of the Lord would usher in the age to come, the blessed age. And on the day of the Lord, the promised eternal reign of David's son would begin. The nations would be judged, God's people saved, gathered to his land and be equipped by God with new hearts that would do his will by his spirit so they'd never again be driven from his presence by their sin and they'd know peace. And yes, on that day, at that time, the righteous would be raised. As Wright says, resurrection in the world of second temple Judaism, and that's the time of the New Testament, was about the restoration of Israel on the one hand and the newly embodied life of all the Lord's people on the other with close connections between the two. And that it was thought of as the great event that the Lord would accomplish at the very end of the present age, the event which would constitute the age to come. But nobody imagined that any individuals had already been raised or would be raised in advance of that great last day. But Jesus rose in this present age. In his resurrection, he brings the end into history. And his resurrection was understood to be the resurrection of the Christ, God's end-time king who would deliver God's people, who would bring that end-time reign of peace and justice, establish the eternal kingdom. Peter quoted, in the first public proclamation of the gospel, Peter quoted a psalm of David, Psalm 16. David says of him, that is of the Christ, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. I'll not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. And Peter then went on to interpret the meaning of the psalm by applying it to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He's both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned to Hades and his flesh did not experience decay, God has raised this Jesus.
See, Jesus' resurrection not only shows that God can raise the dead, and it doesn't only vindicate Jesus of the false charges laid against him. It actually makes the promised future certain. The future eternal reign of David's son in justice and righteousness, which none of his enemies will ever be able to overturn. And in Jesus' resurrection, you see the sure triumph of God's purposes to have a saved people. And that is why Jesus' resurrection changes everything. It is not an isolated, random event. It is the triumph of God, the declaration that sin and death would not frustrate God from revealing his purpose for creation, his purpose to bless. It's the declaration that those who find peace with God now through being at peace with his King Jesus will enjoy peace with God forever. The declaration that Jesus can give his people that life which death and sin will never again mar, the life of the new age he brings that those who are faithful now, those who are righteous by trusting and following Jesus, will rise and so much more. Now, we'll be exploring that more over the next couple of weeks. But for believers, while me speaking about the triumph of God in the resurrection of Jesus may sound abstract, the resurrection really does change everything. See, think about it. Some examples. The resurrection changes the way we suffer. For we know the suffering of this age is not final. It changes the way we die. A falling asleep to awake in risen bodies with all the Lord's people. We with the Lord forever. And yes, it changes the way we live in this age. For we know the way of Christ of loving God and loving our neighbours, of denying ourselves and taking up our cross each day to do the Lord's will, of suffering for doing good. We know the way of Christ is seen in the resurrection to be most certainly the way of life. We know that those who lose their life for Christ's sake and the gospel will find it. And that means so much, doesn't it? It means, for example, that we'll use our money differently, shunning greed to store up treasure in heaven by using it the way God wants us to. Oh, it means we'll think differently about sexuality, that we'll keep sex for marriage between a man and a woman because we know that's the way that Christ commands. Oh, we'll live in a certain way in marriage where it's not going to be about ourselves and our needs being met but about the other. Oh, we'll seek to love even our enemies. We'll practice forgiveness. Oh, yeah, and we'll be freed from the tyranny of making transient things, the transient things of this life ultimate, the tyranny that holds our society in its thrall. We'll be freed from that tyranny, which actually changes the way we experience both loss and gain, failure and triumph and opens the door to contentment. The resurrection, they're just examples. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. But seeing the significance of Christ's resurrection in the context of God's promises, of his revealed plans and purposes, 
begs the question, doesn't it? Did it happen? There's no doubt, is there, that all the apostles preached the resurrection. As you heard Paul say, whether then it's I or they, so we proclaim and so you believe. Oh, and there's no doubt that all our written gospels climax with accounts of the resurrection, even Mark 16. And the first Christian preaching is clearly a proclamation that God raised Jesus from the dead. To the crowds at Pentecost, Peter had said, God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him, Jesus, to be held by death. Oh, Peter, speaking uh, to Cornelius, says, we ourselves are witnesses of everything Jesus did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem, and yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. God raised up this man on the third day and caused him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us, whom God appointed as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Oh, yes, and then Paul speaking to the sophisticated Athenians. He says, God has provided proof of this, that there'll be a day when all will be judged to everyone by raising that man from the dead. Now, there have been other messianic movements in Palestine before Jesus, but when their leader was killed, they faded away. But not Jesus' movement, even though he had died as a shamed failure. Jesus' movement, his church, It grew and expanded across the Roman Empire. And at the heart of that expansion was the universal conviction amongst followers of Jesus that God had raised him from the dead, that he was alive after having first died, alive bodily, in that body in continuity with that in which he was killed. Because that is what resurrection is. It's not a conviction that Jesus has gone to be with God after he died. It's not a conviction that Jesus' spirit ethos lives on in us. It's not a conviction of Jesus' continuing influence. Resurrection is a conviction that after Jesus has been killed, he is now alive in an embodied state in that body which is in continuity with the body in which he died. Now, what convinced his first followers of this? Well, they say, as we heard in 1 Corinthians, it was because the risen Jesus appeared to them. Is it reasonable to believe their testimony? And if we're not going to accept their explanation of why they proclaim Jesus has risen from the dead, what alternate explanation are we, are you, going to give for their testimony? Because That witness does need explanation, doesn't it? I mean, the New Testament is an historical document. It exists. It didn't always exist. It came into existence. And at its core is a conviction that Jesus has been raised from the dead, that he lives. 1 Corinthians 15 is a great example of that. And the Christian church exists. Once it didn't. According to its first members, it came into existence because of the resurrection of Jesus and the subsequent pouring out by Jesus of the Spirit. And so Christians became known for their hope of resurrection. Now, if we're not going to accept that explanation, Christians' own explanation, what is the alternative, more plausible explanation for the New Testament and the existence of the Christian church 
you are going to give. Well, let's review the evidence. Paul outlines some of it here. And it starts with that little phrase, he was buried. You see, the witness of those who were at the cross is that Jesus really died on the cross. There was no mistake about his identity. There was no near-death experience. He died. The Romans were very good at killing people. They were practised at execution. And while the point of crucifixion was to inflict shame and pain on the crucified and to demonstrate Rome's absolute power, its goal, its end point was always the death of the crucified. And in Jesus' case, a soldier put a spear through his side just to make sure. And burial involved getting close and personal with the corpse, wrapping it in linen cloth. And first century people were more familiar with death than most of us are because the burial was the responsibility of family and friends. And you don't need a medical degree to know that someone is dead, that the corpse you are handling is lifeless. Jesus was dead when they buried him on that Friday. But when the women who had noted the location of the tomb on the Friday went to the tomb on the third day, it was empty. The body wasn't there. Now, of course, the empty tomb did not convince them Jesus had been raised from the dead. But it does tell you that when you're talking about resurrection, you are talking about the body. And that's important for the body in which death is experienced is the only place where a reversal of death can be conclusively demonstrated. And it's important also because it tells you that producing the body would have been the easiest way to scotch reports of Jesus' resurrection. The empty term is important, but not alone convincing of resurrection. So what convinced his followers that Jesus was alive? Well, it was, as you hear, his appearing to them four times. He appeared to Cephas. He appeared to over 500. He appeared to James. He appeared also to me. Appeared to many different people in different times and places. And here's a good summary. I'm about to read a good summary of those appearances by Peter Williams. And it's quoted in Tim Keller's book, Hope in Times of Fear, worth reading, because it was written as Tim himself was diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer, which, he wrote, concentrated his mind wonderfully on the reality and character of our resurrection hope. You see, he, like all of us who die, had skin in the game when testing the gospel witness again. But this is William's summary. And uh, the references are in the transcript. The resurrected Jesus is recorded as appearing in Judea and in Galilee, in town and countryside, indoors and outdoors, in the morning and the evening by prior appointment and without prior appointment, close and distant, on a hill and by a lake, to groups of men and groups of women, to individuals and groups of up to 500, sitting, standing, walking, eating, and always talking. Many are explicitly close-up encounters involving conversations. It is hard to imagine 
This pattern of appearances recorded in the Gospels and early Christian letters without there having been multiple individuals who claim to have seen Jesus risen from the dead. If you were to ask these witnesses why they believe Jesus was risen from the dead, well, they would say it is because the risen Jesus convinced us by appearing to us, talking to us, with us, eating with us, allowing us to touch him, showing us his wounds. And you know, the people that Paul's writing to in Corinthians could have asked them. You notice verse 6, Paul writes, most of them are still alive at the time of his writing, somewhere between 52 and 55 AD. That's, you know, 25 years, 20, 25 years after Jesus was crucified. Oh, and they could have also asked Paul, couldn't they, who lists himself as a witness, the last witness to the risen Jesus, the recipient of a special appearance when the Lord Jesus called him to be his witness to the nations. And none of these witnesses were expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. They knew like we do, the dead stay dead. And if they had a hope of resurrection as first century Jews it was, despite Jesus' prophecy of his resurrection, it was a hope of resurrection at the end of the age. Remember what Wright said? Nobody imagined that any individuals had already been raised or would be raised in advance of the great day. The testimony of these first followers of Jesus is clear, it's consistent, it's tenaciously held in the face of fierce opposition, in the face of death. In telling us that Jesus had been raised on the third day, they are speaking of what they have seen and heard. And if you're not going to believe them, if you're not going to accept their witness, you need, as I've said, some alternate explanation of what they say, some reason to dismiss their testimony to Jesus' resurrection. And no theory of corrupted transmission of the Gospels will help you. For this testimony to the resurrection is in every layer of Christian writing, clear in the letters which are accepted by all sayers coming from Paul, like 1 Corinthians, letters that predate the Gospels in their writing. As C.S. Lewis observed, if you're not going to believe the witness of the apostles, then you must decide that the apostles and the other witnesses are either deceived or deceiving, themselves persuaded to believe a lie or willfully lying. Painting the first witnesses' lies started really early. Uh, We can read in Matthew 28 that the officials who'd been responsible for killing Jesus bribed those who had been guarding Jesus' tomb to say the disciples had come and stolen Jesus' body. But actually that was a pretty lame explanation, isn't it? Because the disciples are not proclaiming an empty tomb but a risen Lord, not a narrow escape but a great triumph. And if you're the authorities, why not just search and produce the bodies? But you see, all suggestions that the disciples are lying suffer from one major flaw, the absence of motive to sustain the lie. I mean, what, say, did the apostles gain by lying? Riches? No. Fame? Well, there was no guarantee of that when they began to speak of Jesus' resurrection, even if now they are household names 
in many parts of the world. What, what, what did they actually gain? Imprisonment, suffering, death. But they all maintained their witness to the end, were willing to die for the truth of the resurrection, for they were convinced Jesus was the risen Lord who could raise them. There were no cracks in the group, no defectors. And you see, you might die for a lie you believe to be true, like those who flew their planes into the Twin Towers believing the lie that dying in jihad would send them straight to paradise. You might die for a lie you believe to be true, but you won't die for a lie you know to be a lie. And actually that's what the first witnesses did. Die for their testimony to Jesus' resurrection, that Jesus is Lord. You see, they were convinced. They were telling the truth. So if they're not lying, intentionally deceiving, might they themselves have been deceived about Jesus being alive? Is that likely? Well, we know that they themselves had an initial scepticism, don't we? Thomas needed to be convinced that Jesus was alive bodily. He wasn't going to take the statements of his friends. He had to see Jesus. Oh, and others needed to be persuaded by the Lord Jesus, by his eating with them and being touched by them, that he was not a ghost, an apparition, but really there in the body. What could have fooled them into believing what was not true? That Jesus was risen while in fact he was still dead and buried. Now here we are going to encounter many so-called explanations because at the heart of them all, is a conviction that the resurrection just could not be. And so any alternate explanation for the disciples' testimony is preferable, no matter how unlikely. You see, if you're not going to accept that 2 plus 2 equals 4, you'll have an infinity of wrong answers to choose from. And that's going to be true if you don't accept the apostles' witness. You've got an infinity of wrong answers to choose from. But having an infinity doesn't make any of them right. Now let me list some very quickly in case you've heard of them and it will be quick and you come and talk to me afterwards. Here are some. The women went to the wrong tomb. What? And nobody could find the right tomb? And remember, they're not preaching an empty tomb but a resurrection. Oh, they killed the wrong person. Well, that would have been a surprise to everybody there at the time, all the people there at the time, the Jewish officials, the Romans. They never doubted that they had killed Jesus and his followers had seen him die. There was no doubt at the time that he was dead. Oh, so if it's not mistaken to mistaken identity, what about mistaken death? Jesus didn't really die. He just swooned from blood loss and then revived in the tomb. That's why we lock up people who've lost blood for three days in a dark room. Isn't that right? Now, this is really modern. It puts it put out by those with little understanding or familiarity with the Roman practice of crucifixion. It's pretty weak, isn't it? Because a weakened, wounded, pallid Jesus on this understanding convinced his disciples that he triumphed over death. And then, of course, he just disappeared. From the scene. Not a good answer. How about this? The apostles were suffering from visionary or hallucinatory experiences. Either grief or magic mushrooms caused them to see things that were not there. 
But actually, there is a real doubt about the existence of mass hallucinations. How can you get a group of people to hallucinate, say 500, about the same thing at the same time? Right? And the record of Jesus' appearances at different times, different places to different people, and not the stereotyped experiences of the grieving who see the departed. All others say, and you've got to be really sophisticated to go for this one, speaking of resurrection, they say, was an acceptable mythic way of conveying their convictions of Jesus, of his greatness. But actually, there was no accepted convention like that in the ancient world. You really were not meant to lie. And this is suggesting that the apostles knew that it was okay to tell lies to convince people of their truth. When the Lord Jesus and the God they worshipped condemned lying. Now if you're attracted to any of these or any others, come and talk because all the alternatives are clearly implausible. The explanation of the witnesses that they give of the cause of their testimony that Jesus was, was Jesus being raised from the dead is best. Their explanation for their testimony, the risen Jesus convinced us by appearing to us. And that is the best explanation for what they say and for their subsequent lives. The alternative explanations, the determination to say the witnesses are deceived or deceiving <coughs> is actually an expression of an underlying assumption that it resurrection just cannot happen. And you know, that's true if we are only looking at human possibilities. But the witnesses don't say Jesus raised himself. They declare God raised him from the dead. If God is... And especially if God is the God who has revealed himself to the Jewish people, the God we meet in the pages of the Old Testament, well, God can give life to the dead, the creator of all. For him, the resurrection is possible. And people's rejection of the possibility of resurrection is an expression of their prior determination to reject God to exclude him from their world. Not the result of their evaluation of the evidence. It's actually the fruit of their prior belief. Of course, the testimony of the eyewitness is historical evidence, not scientific evidence. It cannot be. For the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus are singular events, not controlled experiments. But this kind of historical evidence, human testimony, is actually the kind of evidence, even if from centuries before, we evaluate almost every day that most of us are familiar with, working out whether someone is telling the truth or not, whether someone can be believed or not. You see, God is so kind. You don't need to be an expert in modern science to know whether the resurrection, the witnesses to the resurrection can be believed or not. You actually just need to be human, living amongst humans. And if the witnesses are not deceived or deceiving, well, then they are telling us the truth and it is reasonable to believe them. God has raised Jesus from the dead. He lives an embodied life on the other side of death 
where death is most felt, experienced in our bodies. There the victory of Jesus over death has been most clearly demonstrated once and for all and his victory is the victory of the Son of God, God's eternal ruler who brings the age to come. But what does that mean for us? Well, if you're a believer, it means you are right to keep trusting and following Jesus, to hold fast to the truth of the gospel witness, to rejoice in hope, the hope we will learn more of over the next couple of weeks. For as Paul says, it is by holding fast to the witness of the gospel that we are being saved. But what does it mean for those of you who do not yet believe the gospel witness? Well, it means there is a living Jesus. And because he lives, you will have to meet him one day. A Jesus who now offers life and hope, but who then will be a righteous judge, who will give to everyone what they deserve for what they've done or what they have failed to do. But if that is you, if you don't yet believe in the resurrection, ask yourself, what stops you from believing the testimony of those first believers, that the risen Jesus appeared to them? Is it because you think they're not believable? Well, let me ask you again. Is your alternative explanation for what they say any more believable? And remember, there has to be some explanation of what they say, of the existence of the New Testament and the Christian church. If you don't think they're believable, come and talk and let's test the evidence together. Or maybe you don't believe because you don't want to believe. You don't want to think that there is a God who acts in history, a God who has authority over your life. Well, again, true things don't cease to be true because you don't want to believe them. And why would you not want to believe this? Remember where we started. We must all die. Where else will you find a better and surer hope than in the one who has already beaten death and in that victory shown that he has the authority to give life to all who turn to him. One who we know has power over death. See, the resurrection of Jesus does change everything. And it can change everything for you, your present and your future. It can take away your alienation, your separation from the living God who gives you life. And it can give you, mortal as you are, it can give you a hope of life which is sure and certain and can never be taken away from you. And that is good news. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your mercy you sent your son into the world. We thank you that he has died for our sins. And we thank you that you have raised him from the dead. 
And we thank you that you have given us evidence of this in the witness of those who saw him risen from the dead, those who touched him, those who ate with him, those who spoke with him, those who were convinced by our risen Jesus of something that was not true of anyone else, that he was risen, that he had beaten death, that he now had a life death cannot touch. We thank you for their witness and we thank you that the risen Jesus is the one who can share that life with us. We pray by your grace that each of us here would know that for ourselves and we would be people who can live and who can die with hope of eternal life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.